Emmanuel, can you hear me? Tanuja, can you hear me? Yeah, we're good to go. Our first attempt into podcasting. Uh, well, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Tanuja. I'm an engineering program manager in New York. I'm Emmanuel. I am an engineer in Mountain View. And we are the organizers of Googlers for Ending Forced Arbitration. Last year, to the date, actually, we organized a walkout in protest to how our company was handling a, a number of issues around sexual harassment, assault, discrimination. And one of the main problems was a policy called forced arbitration. If you've never heard of it, we're not surprised because it's buried deep down in the fine print of your employer agreements or those terms of service agreements that you normally kind of click through when getting a new product or service. But the average American is actually under 2.5 arbitration agreements, un kind of unbeknownst to him or her. Essentially, this is a practice that corporations use to say, by accepting this agreement, you, the worker or customer, agree that if you ever have an issue with us, you promise not to take us to court. Instead, you'll go through this private, usually secret process where we, the corporation, pay for the quote-unquote judge. And oh, by the way, you don't have a choice in the matter. And oh, by the way, you can't gang up on us by banding together with other people similarly harmed to form a class action lawsuit. So, you know, what could go wrong? <laughs> So we protested this at Google with a walkout at first and then months of sustained work and eventually Google eliminated the policy. But we honestly don't think this practice should be allowed anywhere in America. So we've been advocating for the FAIR Act or the Forced Arbitration Injustice Repeal Act, which would make it illegal to force people into this shadow system. And when we were in DC this summer, we heard what the counterpoints were and they were I mean, honestly, they were lies. And so, Emmanuel, I think you should really tell the story because you were the one doing the detective work that got this whole thing started. Tell us about what happened as you started interacting with members from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that I am frequently confused because the U.S. Chamber of Commerce sounds like Congress. And I often forget that it's actually a very large lobbying group for uh, business interests. And they had a speaker or two who were talking at the arbitration hearing, and they had some interesting statistics and arguments, which I was curious to actually hear more and understand uh, where they were coming from with those. And as somebody who's not a lawyer, I don't know much about the details. And so when somebody confident and knowledgeable speaks on stage to Congress, it, it sounds reasonable to me at, you know, first listen. So I was funneled towards the press person for the Chamber of Commerce who presented me with a nice glossy packet with lots of very pretty words explaining why arbitration is a great thing. <laughs> and then talk to me about how wonderful this arbitration is and it, how it saves everyone so much money and time and you only have to give up all of your rights in the process. And, <laughs> oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a pretty nice bargain. And I think one of the, one of the funny takeaways was that at the end of the conversation, I asked her what the, what she would actually do when she sees an arbitration in practice. Is she excited? Like, awesome. I can go into arbitration. And she actually recognized that she does not want to do arbitration. She would rather have a court trial. But in reality, she has no choice, no power, even with all of her knowledge. She just, there's nothing she could do except sign it and it's a terms of service. And what else is she going to do? So I think that really sums up the situation that 
no matter how knowledgeable you are, you can't really avoid forced arbitration. Well, and Emmanuel, I think another piece of the packet that we read was really about this narrative that the only people that wanted to pass the FAIR Act and end forced arbitration were trial lawyers because they were greedy and they wanted to bring a bunch of frivolous lawsuits to bear. And that seemed like something that we needed to talk about. Yeah, exactly. I think that they, it came across very clearly that they're you know very obsessed with class actions at the end of the day. And everything in the packet is all, you know, very nice words about how arbitration is great, obviously just completely ignoring the aspect of it being forced and that if it was so great, you would just let people choose. But the other thing is, you know, really harping on the point of, oh, have you ever gotten money from class action, which is funny because not so long after this, the Equifax settlement came out and people actually tried to get, you know, $150, if not more for their social security numbers being leaked. And then it turns out that actually the problem was not class action giving too much money, but that Equifax did not have to give enough money. And so didn't have enough money to actually cover the money that they were promising people who were affected. And so talking to her and asking, okay, so if you're so upset with class action, why not, you know, an alternative like class arbitration that maybe you can have it faster and speedier in the way you wanted. And she had no answer because even the people who are in favor of forced arbitration just cannot defend why a company would not allow still a collective arbitration because that makes so much sense for all of these cases. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. Let's start jumping into these conversations. We are going to first start with Gordon. To share your name and firm. Yes, this is Gordon Kaup, and I am with Kaup and Feinberg LLP. We're a law firm in San Francisco, California, and we litigate in both California and New York. Could you just walk us through what happens when a client comes to you and you find out that they've had some experience in the workplace, but they've also signed an arbitration agreement? How does that discussion go? Sure. Sure. And, and let me just start out by saying that we get uh, many calls a week and there are a lot of people who work and who are in need of legal advice. Um, and the vast majority of calls that we take, uh, we reject representation uh, because uh, we do not think that the case is either strong enough in terms of liability or damages or the person just doesn't even have a claim. So uh, ordinarily, we take a fair bit of time uh, interviewing people about their work history, finding out what's going on, seeing if they have records or witnesses who are willing to support their version of events, uh, and that's part of our case intake and evaluation process. The vast majority of plaintiff's attorneys, like myself, take matters on contingency basis. There's two ways to pay lawyers. You can pay lawyers by the hour, hundreds of dollars an hour. Most people can't afford that. So the vast majority of plaintiffs' civil lawsuits are filed on a contingency fee basis, meaning that the attorney like myself will only be paid if they are successful in the matter. Successful meaning a recovery is gained either by settlement or by verdict and judgment, okay? When we speak of a strong case, we speak of a case that makes sense in a business perspective. 
right? I'm taking risk on any case that I take. The risk being I'm not certain that I will be paid for my work. So I will only take a case if I think I am very certain to get a recovery, either by judgment or settlement, okay? When you think of lawsuits, attorneys break them down into two ways. There's two parts of a lawsuit. One is liability. The second is damages. Liability is showing that what the person or the employer did was wrong, was illegal. And so you have to establish that the, that the employer is liable for misconduct. They violated the employment laws. And so once you establish liability, then you get to the second part of a civil action, and that is what, to what extent was the individual harmed? And the employee can be harmed in two ways. The employee can be harmed economically or non-economically. Let's start with economic damage. Economic damage involves lost wages. It can be past lost wages or it can be future lost wages if you're terminated and you're unable to find replacement work. It can also include retirement benefits. It can include medical insurance, dental, vision. Okay. In terms of non-economic damages, we can talk about emotional distress, grief, anxiety, physical pain and suffering, as well as mental and emotional pain and suffering. And physical pain and suffering can come in if there's a sexual assault or if there's a failure to accommodate that exacerbates a disability or, or a medical condition. So to back up and answer your question, when I look at a case, I look both for strengths in terms of liability. I'm confident that we can prove that what the employer did was wrong and that it makes sense to do, meaning damages are significant enough to make it financially worthwhile. There is, in, under the federal anti-discrimination laws, under Title VII and in California's Fair Employment and Housing Act and New York City's human rights law, there's attorney's fees provisions. And what that means is if you win the case, then I would be able to get my attorney's fees paid for on an hourly basis from the employer who we just got a judgment against. And that's significant because sometimes, especially in the low-wage sector, uh, an, employer may, an employee may come to you with really strong liability but very low damages. And so if I get a case like that where it's just really clear-cut, very strong evidence, but there's low damages, uh, I will consider and have taken those cases because there's an attorney's fees provision that then makes the case um, financially feasible from a pers business perspective, financially feasible to, to pursue. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like the bar is pretty high coming in for someone to get their case taken. So I'm wondering, you know, how you feel about one of the commonly touted benefits that gets thrown around about arbitration is that it prevents frivolous, frivolous lawsuits from kind of clogging the court and um, it line, you know, right now, if lawyers are wanting to get rid of arbitration, it's just because they want to line their pockets. It sounds like you're yeah. saying that's, that's, you know, there's already safeguards put in place against that. Um, but, you know, I'd like to hear how that works as like, as if I was coming into your office and walking through that a little bit. Mm. Sure. I, I think your audience has to have a really clear understanding that the notion 
uh, frivolous lawsuits clogging the courts and, and being a financial drain on the economic system or perhaps even uh, causing uh, you know, the economy to suffer and, and lack of jobs is a boogeyman. It's, it's not real. Okay, there, there is no wave of frivolous lawsuits in this country. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is just, <laughs> it, it goes into what I just told you. Plaintiff's lawyers only get paid if we win. It would make, and I, and I, would, I would venture to say 90 to 95% of civil actions filed by workers are filed with a contingency fee agreement, meaning the lawyers will only get paid if they recover. What business or financial sense does it make for a plaintiff's lawyer to push a frivolous lawsuit if there's not a guarantee of recovery? Not only do with that lawyer work for free, and litigation takes hundreds of hours of time, but often in contingency agreements, the lawyers are also fronting advancing costs of litigation. Depositions can be one to two to three thousand dollars a pop. Experts can easily be between fifteen and twenty five thousand dollars. It would make no sense for a plaintiff's lawyer to put hundreds of hours of time into a case for which they won't get paid and tens of thousands of dollars of costs for which they will get paid. So the notion of frivolous lawsuits is, is completely refuted by just the business reality uh, of plaintiff's litigation. There's also a legal reason why frivolous lawsuits don't get filed, and that is, is you can be sanctioned. It's sanctionable conduct. And what do we mean by that? We mean by sanctionable conduct that if you file a frivolous lawsuit, the judge can issue an order ordering you to pay the attorney's fees and litigation costs of the other side. So there's legal penalties associated with that. And, and I will say this, in my 14, 15 years of practice, 16 years of practice, I have never seen a frivolous lawsuit filed by a plaintiff. Even if you go to court, you have an option of a bench trial and a jury trial. And the reason why plaintiff's lawyers always choose the jury trial is because you're much more likely to get full value for your case, full compensation for your client if you take the case to trial with a jury. Because judges who have been doing this for a long time and lawyers who are arbitrators and have been doing this for a long time are jaded. And so they devalue those claims. And that's why an arbitrator or a judge at a bench trial oftentimes gives lower awards than a jury would. So what does that mean for arbitration? It means that if I have a claim that's mostly non-economic damages, I am going to be very hesitant to take that to an arbitration, okay? Because there's nothing, like the economic damages, you, you add up numbers. I have a case right now that I'm going to be arbitrating where there's significant economic damages and very low non-economic damages. And so that's a case that I'm fine going forward with at arbitration because I know I'm going to be able to add up those numbers, and if I establish liability, which I believe I'll be able to do, then the arbitrator should be bound by that evidence of the loss. And we will, will not be as inclined to provide a lower award than the client is, is entitled to. So one, one key factor is, is the evidence really going to help establish liability? even more so maybe than in a state case, a court case? And two, is there very strong 
evidence of economic damages as opposed to a case that's mostly non-economic harm. All right. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, of course. Um, would you just state for the record your name and your firm? Sure. Uh, Jason Fuman, O'Dwyer and Bernstein. When a client comes in and then you walk through their employment agreement with them and then they realize maybe it's for the first time that they're bound by an arbitration agreement, which they didn't know before. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of people stop then or do they continue or... Continue through the process of wanting to bring their claim? Yeah. No, they want to continue to talk about the claim because to, to most people, they don't know what that means, right? They don't understand what the concept of, oh, I have to bring this to arbitration. Fine. Okay. What are you telling me? I don't understand what that process looks like. I mean, more people are becoming more and more educated about it just because it's in the news with, you know, your walkout and other things that, um, you know, the recent Supreme Court case that was, yeah. you know, relatively... Um, <laughs> thoroughly reported on, um, but most people just don't understand um, what what it means to them. So we we have to walk them through that process. Um, we have to talk to them about what the arbitration looks like. They, we have to talk to them about you know how it may limit them or how it may limit the development of the case. We have to talk about you know the the fees involved in the case and what we can expect at the end of the day. So. No, they have to be generally educated about this process. Um, and, you know, most people are, are um, I don't want to say uneducated because that, that sounds, you know, sort of demeaning, but they, they, they don't know what it's like to bring a case or sue anybody, right? Why would you, right? You never really want to find yourself in a position to sue somebody. Um, so we would walk them through what it looks like if they were able to bring their case to court. We would walk them through what it looks like when they brought their case to arbitration. So, um, you know, we just sort of educate them on the entire process. So no, they, they wouldn't walk away at that point. They would they would certainly seek more information. Okay. And then once you feel that they are like educated, they understand what the options are in front of them. I realize it might be hard to pull a number out of a hat, but do yeah. you know kind of proportionally how many people decide to move forward with arbitration versus, or like, I'm not doing this unless I can go to court or any of... Yeah, um, when you when you talk to them about, and it really depends on the number and the type of case that you get and, and you know, what, what the recovery may be at the end of the day and what the process looks like from start to finish, you know, everybody is different. So some people may say to themselves, um, I actually don't want to go to court. I don't want to be subject to sort of sitting in front of a jury um, and sort of going through the process. It's very, um, you know, it's very nerve wracking for people to think about doing that. Um, and they don't want to, you know, once you start to talk to them about what that whole process entails, you know, no matter, well, I wouldn't say no matter what, um, but in many cases, they, they say, I don't want to go through that at all. Um, um, and some people may say, um, I'm actually in, I'd actually prefer to go before an arbitrator, you know, one-on-one -on -one with, you know, your, you know, with their attorney and then the other attorney in the room and maybe their employer. Um, it's a, it's a, a little bit more of a relaxed setting and, and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of less intimidating, but then walking to this huge courtroom, right. In this big fancy building, they don't really want to go through that. So, um, um, so some folks find, find that that's actually a more, um, 
a palatable sort of reality to them to sort of sit in front of an arbitrator in a small room as opposed to a big courtroom with a big jury of their peers and, and going through that whole process and going through depositions and going through yeah. through all of that. But, um, you know, really, in, I wish I could sort of put a number on or a percentage on that kind of walk away from it. Um, but but I would tell you that it's a pretty high percentage of people that walk away from filing employment-based case claims, you know, sort of depending on what the amount is that they're going to recover at the end of the day, how long it's going to take from the beginning to the end of the process, what they're going to have to go through in that process. Because a lot of folks, you know, they walk into our office with employment-based claims of, you know, I, I didn't get along with my supervisor and, um, you know, they have it out for me and, you know, I just got terminated for it. Mm. And I, I don't necessarily, you know, I want to bring a claim and I want to sue somebody because, you know, I wasn't able to thrive in my job and so on and so forth. And and those are, you know, the, there's not a lot of underlying, you know, there's not a lot of merit to those cases. So those are ones that we would necessarily turn down also. But, you know, for the ones that have some, some teeth to them, um, where people think that they have been um, discriminated against in some way, um, you know, when we start to walk them through some of the questions to bear out some of the facts of their case, um, you know, they'll um, sometimes they th start to think about what happened to them and yeah. less as a discriminatory claim and more of a, you know, just sort of okay, like I was thinking about this one way and it's actually not discrimination; it's something else. Um, I was just not getting along with somebody. I don't know that it was necessarily because of a protected reason. Um, so they start to think to themselves, okay, maybe this isn't a case that I necessarily have. Um, but I would say with respect to the arbitration sort of aspect of this, um, I, I think it's rare in our case for somebody to decide not to go forward because this would be in arbitration versus being in court, frankly. Um, okay. Um, so it's just that's just the no. Way that's interesting it. because I feel like one of the arguments against arbitration is that it has like a chilling effect, where it's a claim suppressant as opposed to an alternative way to handle claims. So if you're saying you don't feel that way, that's good to know. Well, the so the, you asked the question of from the side of the employee whether or not the employee would decide not to bring a claim under because it was an arbitration-based claim versus a court-based claim, and um, you know, to them, it's less. I think it's less important than to the to the attorney um, because in the attorney knows a little bit better about the process. Um, he knows a little bit better, or she knows a little bit better about. Um, the discovery process, the deposition process, the fact-gathering process. Um, we know a little bit better about the rewards that can come at the end of the day, whether or not the case is worthwhile to be brought. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that all that factors into whether or not you want to bring an action. Um, you know, if, if you're forced to go into arbitration, perhaps you're not able to develop the facts of this case as, as much as you're able to in court because you had limited discovery mm. um, you know, because you think to yourself that, you know, if, if I got this case in front of a, a jury as opposed to an individual arbitrator, I'm going to get a higher um, uh, resolution and higher amount of money damages in front of a jury of, of that person's peers as opposed to just in front of a, a single arbitrator who, you know, may or may not have some sort of affiliation or relationship with the company. So I, I think that, I think it certainly has had a chilling effect, the mandatory arbitrations. I'll tell you that, um, you know, you're you're seeing so many employers implement that that 
they're not going to implement that if they don't think it's going to have a chilling effect yeah. on, on the number of employment claims that are being brought. But th- I think that there was a recent study, I think early, late last year, early this year, um, by a professor at NYU who demonstrated the, um, the substantial decline in the number of employment-based claims. So <clears throat> I think that... Um, I think that, yes, it does have a chilling effect, and yes, um, it, it, it does make the attorney rethink whether or not or think a little bit harder about whether or not they're going to bring the claim because they just know what the process looks like a little better mm-hmm. than the employee does when they bring that. And, you know, the... Hello? Hey, it's Peter. How are you? I'm okay. I'm so sorry. I just had another uh, call that ran over, and I completely flaked. My apologies. In your experience, or your firm's experience, how have judges reacted to the fact that they sometimes have to compel cases into arbitration? Are they neutral? Do they seem to have a feeling about it? What are your thoughts? Sure. I think most judges that I've seen in person having to rule on uh, motions to compel arbitrations by big corporations have been pretty disappointed um, and sad about the role that they have to play in moving uh, cases that are supposed to be about justice into a private uh, system for uh, resolving cases that is stacked against uh, ordinary working people, ordinary consumers. And some judges have spoken out against this practice and said that it's a real abomination, that the place where justice should be available um, is in federal uh, and state courthouses, where for a modest filing fee, and in some cases no filing fee, uh, an ordinary worker or consumer can get justice, can get a fair and neutral uh, judge who's been either confirmed or appointed by a governmental body. And so judges have been outraged often by the idea that they have to spend their time uh, ordering the parties to go arbitrate cases that really uh, deal with public rights and statutory rights that people fought for and died for, uh, whether it's 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, they want to be part of the system of, of justice. We have a public justice system that you know, often is fair, but when they're forced to send people to arbitration, a system they know is not fair, it's very disappointing for them, and many of them have spoken out against this uh, as an abomination. That kind of brings me to my last question. Uh, we talked a little bit last time about fee structures, and can you share a little bit of how does it differ? How do, you know, a lawyer working for a company that's going through arbitration, how do they get paid versus a lawyer that's working with, with the plaintiff? Sure. So, so corporate lawyers who represent companies that have broken the consumer laws or the uh, labor and employment laws, they get paid by the hour and often a lot of money sometimes in the $1,000 to $2,000 range per hour. Um, And whether they win or lose or settle, they get paid for every hour that they work. Um, On the plaintiff side, we're representing ordinary consumers, ordinary workers. Uh, The standard uh, arrangement is we don't get paid as lawyers unless we recover something and win something for our clients. Um, And oftentimes what we get uh, paid is a percentage of what our clients get. And so um, it means that we advance uh, sometimes hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of time, uh, legal legal time and costs uh, on behalf of our clients without any expectation that we would get paid. And only if we win uh, or can get a settlement where money is paid, uh, do we ever get paid one cent. Um, And so what that means is we have to choose our cases carefully. We can't 
file frivolous cases or cases that we think we're likely to lose, uh, we have to pick cases where we think, uh, even though we want to do justice uh, in the world, where you know, we can potentially get, get paid for uh, some or all of the work that we do. And what it means is defendants have a, a reason uh, to delay and delay and delay, uh, whereas plaintiffs want to get these cases uh, done as quickly as possible. Defense lawyers, if they can drag out these cases for years and years, they're going to make millions of dollars and they're going to get paid every single month for the work that they do. Um, sometimes it's, it's referred to as churning the file, uh, making work uh, for uh, the defense side that is done uh, because defense lawyers want to get paid like anyone else, uh, but it's not always in the interest of justice. Uh, plaintiff's lawyers um, would rather be as efficient as possible to get the cases over and get justice done quickly. Um, we have no incentive to you know, try to drive up the bill or spend years and years on litigation. And, and sometimes that can get in the way of settling cases if there are different incentives on both sides. My name is Chris Williams. I'm an attorney out of Chicago, and I'm the co-director of an organization called the National Legal Advocacy Network. Uh, I'll give you an example where um, a, a staffing agency was recruiting laborers, but the recruiter himself was the one filling out the application online and therefore checking the box on behalf of the employee agreeing to the arbitration agreement where the employee, him or herself, did not actually check the box agreeing to the arbitration agreement. Um, we were able to successfully challenge whether or not that, that arbitration agreement should be enforced. But as a general matter, they are enforceable and, and they are really problematic. Um, they're they're pr particularly problematic because they, you know, one, by, by taking it out of the established judicial system where you have levels of courts and you have sort of predictability and reliability about what the law is, um, you, you're basically privatizing the judicial system, the justice system. And so, you know, you may have longstanding legal precedents that you rely on if you go into court. Uh, in wage and hour, for example, there's this longstanding legal precedence that the employer has to keep records of the time that employees worked. And if the employer doesn't keep those records, the burden shifts then for the employer to disprove what the employee testifies to. That's a huge advantage for the employee where an employer doesn't keep records. That that is the law of the land. It comes out of Supreme Court precedence. It should be. It it has been equally applied across jurisdictions and different circuits around the country. But an arbitrator is free to ignore that precedence and and go on their own gut instinct or what they think is fair. And there's no real effective appeals process for that. An appellate a, a, a court is not going to overturn an arbitration decision unless it exceeds the scope of what the parties agreed to. And the arbitration agreements in, in employment are written by employers, so they're writing them in a way that this basically the agreement covers everything. Um, so th that's one of the concerns we have. Uh, I've had a number of cases, for example, in Illinois, under our law regulating the temporary staffing industry, if an employee is used is 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 signed up to be used and sent to a client company, and then it's not that ends up not being used they're entitled to a minimum of four hours pay. Well, a lot of employers ignore that. Now, for that one person, that one day, they're probably entitled to about $35. Uh, 
you know, four hours pay at a minimum wage in, in Illinois. Uh, so it's not a huge claim. It's unlikely anyone's going to file a $400 lawsuit to recover $35. But if the employer is ignoring the will of the Illinois legislature and just basically ignoring this obligation and doing it thousands of times such that it could be a, a, a million-dollar class action settlement covering thousands of people, then that money should be taken away from the employer. That that money is stolen from the employees as as written in the, the law providing this right to those employees. The arbitration agreement and the waiver of the right to go to class to do a class action takes away that tool from the employees, the ability of the employees to recover money stolen from the workforce generally to the benefit of the employer in, you know, in seven, six, seven figures, um, and, and really creates an incentive for employers to just ignore the law. Because if each... Good morning, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well yourself. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you share your full name, your firm, and your background? Sure. My name is Matt Dunn, and I, I am a partner at Getman Sweeney & Dunn, located in Kingston, New York, and we represent workers who are not paid minimum wages and overtime wages, and we bring litigation all around the country. Um, so, Matt, I first learned about you when I was reading Bloomberg Law, and I saw your name as I was reading an article about litigation against Kellogg right now. I think yeah. um, one thing I would love to, to understand more, and I know others have asked this question too, is that at the end of the day, not too many cases actually make it to a, a full like jury trial. A lot of court cases and arbitrations end in settlements. Can you talk through a little bit about what that process looks like, how it differs in between court and arbitration, if the settlements include NDAs? Anything that you could shed light on would be really helpful. For, for the most part, the process is the same. Uh, one big difference that we face in settlement and arbitration versus federal court is that in federal court, we often file our settlement agreements on the public record. Because we bring claims under the Fair Labor Standards Act, that's the minimum wage and overtime uh, law on, on the federal side, the courts need to approve the settlement agreement. Otherwise, the employer doesn't necessarily receive a release of the claims. In arbitration, there is no, uh, the settlement agreement is not open to the public. It's not necessarily will be seen by the public because the arbitration docket is not a public docket. So the public may never know what happened in the case or what happened in the settlement. Often, employers seek uh, NDAs or confidentiality provisions. Those provisions are regularly denied by federal court judges. However, an arbitrator may certainly uh, uh, approve or, or not even, an arbitrator may allow those provisions to go forward. We resist them uh, because there could be potential negative implications for our client if they breach it. 
and we feel strongly that those provisions should not be included within settlement agreements, but at the same time, we recognize that our clients have an interest in resolving their claims. So sometimes they make the decision to agree to confidentiality provisions. And so what about class arbitrations? Is that an option at all? It can be if the arbitration agreement provides for class arbitration. We had a case in uh, where, where we received a, uh, a collective action where people had the opportunity to opt in. We litigated the case for many years. We ultimately won in arbitration, and the case went up to the Seventh Circuit, and the Seventh Circuit, uh, along with the district court decision, based on the Supreme Court decision, Epic Systems said, the named plaintiff had to pursue her claims on an individual basis. So all the people that we had in one collective case now had to litigate. Many of them had to litigate their claims on an individual basis. So we had to start early at the beginning for many of those employees or for those workers. So if the arbitration, going back to your original question, if the arbitration agreement provides for class arbitration or collective arbitration, then employees can pursue their claims collectively. However, most employers, from what I've seen, have required employees to sign agreements that, that have individual arbitration provisions. So going back to our Kellogg case, that's why we filed 40-some individual arbitrations. While all those employees may not be litigating collectively, the impact of all of them filing their cases and pursuing their claims in a mass arbitration has the effect of a collective arbitration. I see. I see. Yeah. I was rewatching the movie uh, Aaron Brockovich the other day, and they were going through that mass arbitration process. And I was thinking, hmm, I don't even know that many people have this option anymore. I feel like they've squelched this based on like the Chipotle and the Uber suits and or, uh, arbitration examples. So and then now Kellogg, like you're saying. Hello? Hello. Hi, Joe, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk today. Really, really sure. appreciate it. Happy to do it. So first of all, arbitration is a private, purely private system. And the terms of the arbitration are governed by the arbitration agreement. And the arbitration agreement is typically drafted by the employer. And the employee has no say in the terms of the contract. He, he or she can simply decline to work at that place, or they, if they work at the particular place of employment, they're bound by the terms of the arbitration agreement. So you can either be unemployed or agree to terms of an arbitration agreement, which you may or may not want or agree with. The second thing is, Arbitrations are in front of private parties who are selected by the parties, but as I said, they, um, the, the, um, uh, the arbitrators are obviously hoping to be selected um, because if not selected, then they're not working. And uh, the way you get selected is to be, uh, to be favored by parties that regularly use arbitration. So companies that have uh, are using lots of arbitration um, are ones that uh, arbitrators are going to be particularly eager to ensure that they don't uh, antagonize because if they do, they won't be selected again. 
unlike in court where anybody can come in and watch the case, um, it is totally secret. So the door closes in a conference room in some office somewhere, and nobody else is allowed in the room other than the parties and their lawyers and a court, maybe a court reporter and the arbitrator. And uh, the arbitration proceeds according to whatever rules are set up in the arbitra- arbitration agreement. The arbitration agreement might say, you know, each side can call one witness and that's it. Or maybe they can call more than one witness or they don't specify. But again, we have rules that normally govern litigation in court. They're the subject of public comment where they have broad input by people who want to express concerns about how to make sure a legal system is fair to everyone. And um, the arbitration agreement, as I said, governing arbitrations is drafted by the party with the power, with the, uh, the employer or the manufacturer or the producer of a, of a consumer good. Um, those are the ones you buy the, the good and you have to be bound by the arbitration agreement. Then after the trial is over, the hearing is over, the arbitrator issues a decision. The decision may simply be a one word decision. Uh, ruling in one side or the other. They don't have to give a reasoned decision unless the agreement requires it, and most do not. Um, in court, judges have to issue reasons for their decisions, and they generally have to be reasons that hold up because they may be the subject of review by a higher court. Arbitrators' decisions can be very simple and offer virtually no reason at all, um, and the and the limit, the opportunities to get review by a higher court are especially limited. So an arbitrator's decision is virtually the final word. In court, if you try a case and you lose, you have access to a higher court to take an appeal and a public record in which to, uh, on which to base your appeal. In arbitration, that is that scope of review on, on appeal is very, very limited. And almost always, the higher courts rule, if there is an appeal, to uphold whatever the arbitrator decided. So the arbitrator's ruling is pretty much final and secret and guided by the terms of whatever the arbitration agreement is that was drafted by the employer. Um, Yes, I am the lead counsel in the sex discrimination class action. That's the Jock versus Sterling Jewelers case that's pending in arbitration in New York. Every kiss begins with K. Sterling Jewelers, accused of creating a culture of pay discrimination and sexual harassment that lasted decades now facing new allegations in the New York Times magazine. How could this be going on to so many people in so many different parts of the country who didn't know each other? A pay discrimination case first filed in 2008, now involving thousands of women, has yet to be resolved. The details kept out of a public court because Sterling made employees sign an arbitration clause. The case is now in its um, uh, 10th year, uh, to 11th year, excuse me, um, and uh, still going. We have been hoping to get to a trial soon, but it hasn't happened. So one of the things that I would say that's noteworthy about this is that um, some of the questions you face in arbitration um, that you don't deal with in court at all um, become uh, sideshows, um, satellite litigation, I would call it. So one, the first question you have to deal with is whether the arbitration agreement even allows for class claims. That was an issue that we had to litigate for two years um, and had to go all the way to the U.S. Court of Appeals in New York to have resolved. That would have not been necessary at all if we were in in a court because 
there's no question you can pursue class claims in court. So the first thing is we had add two years and a lot of time and briefing to the time of the litigation just because we there was a dispute about whether the arbitration agreement even allowed us to pursue class claims. Um, there have been three other appeals to the U.S. Court of Appeals in the last 10 years. So w this case has gone to the Court of Appeals four times, and we're not done yet, um, in ways that would not probably not have gone to the Court of Appeals at all if it were yet, if it were in court. So we have spent a lot of time um, in appellate uh, review of various things, all related to features of the arbitration agreement and the scope of the arbitration agreement and what does the agreement permit and what doesn't it permit and endless legal issues that were created because we are in arbitration where the path has become much more convoluted. And uh, had we been in court, we would have simply proceeded to gather the facts through discovery. And if we didn't settle the case, we would have tried it and we would have won or lost and that would have been the end of the case. So uh, I can't tell you how long the case would have taken if we'd gone to court, but I can tell you it would have been procedurally a lot more simple. Um, the other thing I would say is we've done a lot of fact gathering in, in the case in, in arbitration as we would have had to do um, in court. Um, you know, The arbitrator we have is a former federal magistrate judge uh, who I think is very capable and been fair-minded, and so I have no nothing to say about her that would be in any way uh, critical. Um, and um, uh, but we are, uh, and I guess the other major feature of this, which we definitely should talk about, is that it's for years it was entirely secret. So here's a case we brought um, on behalf of thousands, tens of thousands of women, and for pretty much almost 10 years, nine years of that time, um, virtually none of them knew anything about the case. They didn't even know whether they were part of the case or not uh, because we had to conduct the proceedings uh, secretly because that's what the arbitration agreement required. That meant that we had to keep secret what rulings we were getting. We had to keep secret what kind of evidence we were collecting. We had some very powerful evidence and we couldn't make it public. We couldn't share it with our clients. Um, eventually, we negotiated a, an agreement that permitted us to make some of the evidence public. And even to this day, a lot of the evidence that we've collected, we can't make public because we didn't spend all our time, we have spent all our time negotiating over which materials to make public and which not. But of the materials that we made public, some of them got a lot of public attention because they were sworn statements from several hundred women and men who gave graphic accounts of harassment and other forms of mistreatment of women in the workplace. Um, these were sworn statements by women and men observing the kind of, this kind of conduct, um, which uh, were made public in uh, February of, I think, February 2017, and had never before been made public, even though they were gathered over a period of nearly a decade at that point, about seven or eight years. Um, and not surprisingly, they had a huge impact um, publicly uh, in, in people's attention to this and uh, had an ad adverse effect on the company's stock that day and, and, and days following it as people learned about this conduct that uh, they had not been aware of. So I could be sitting next to a colleague who, unbeknownst to me, is facing the same harassment that I am facing by my boss, and neither of us would know it. 
because we wouldn't, couldn't talk about our cases. Correct. That's exactly right. Well, that's the, I guess, the way to really stop a Me Too movement if you don't let people say Me Too because they have no idea that the person next to them is going through this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the ultimate in balkanizing the workplace in depriving people the chance to learn what's happening to each other uh, is to uh, force people to have to litigate claims that are really identical to each other in separate proceedings that are secret, in which all the proceedings are secret, including the outcome, and in which they may not even be permitted to discuss the fact that they're pursuing their claim because of the rules of the arbitration. So it, um, you know, it's like putting uh, these in a in a lockbox, each claim in a lockbox, and trying to ensure that no one else has access to it or knows about it. Well, so then let's talk about that because if every claim is in a lockbox, could what you have in that box or the outcomes of those boxes be different, and we'll have no idea, even if it was the same issue? Yes, yes. So that is a real that is a fundamental problem with arbitration. And that is that arbitration, unlike courts, which are often either bound by or at least have to account for each other's rulings and whose rulings are public. So we all know how some conduct is found to be lawful or unlawful. Arbitrations are both totally secret and the rulings of arbitrators have no no impact, no don't bind anyone other than the parties to each of the arbitrations. So I could have an arbitration uh, and uh, could prevail in my claim. You could have an arbitration involving the exact same type of claim involving the same supervisor to whom is alleged the same kind of misconduct, and you might lose because your arbitrator sees it differently or there are facts that may be developed a a little bit differently, and neither of us would know that the outcome was different. I feel like that's one of the most important parts of being able to cite precedent and other cases and do appeals. So that entire process is just gone from this arbitration system. Yeah. So, yeah. So one of the most profound and long lasting, I think most profound impacts uh, that our, our the u- frequent use of arbitration would have on, on the American legal system is one of the brilliant features of our American legal system is the common law. That is the system by which courts issue decisions interpreting uh, the law and applying it to particular factual situations and issue decisions which are public. So we, the public, and uh, can be guided by the, the rulings that these courts issue and have some sense of whether certain conduct is permissible or impermissible. And, all, and judges around the country are able to be informed by each other's decisions. So they may be persuaded or not, or maybe they're bound by other co- higher courts' decisions. And so we build over time this, this elaborate uh, patchwork, uh, this quilt of American jurisprudence that uh, educates all of us and uh, helps inform all of us. Arbitra- use of arbitration frequ- with the kind of frequency that we see are seeing is going to destroy that because we're going to lose the benefit of public rulings that inform all of our behavior and we're going to lose the benefit of, of court rulings that are, are, have some precedent and give us all some degree of confidence that we will all know what conduct is lawful and unlawful rather than finding that one person's ruling, if even we learned about it, and usually they're secret, isn't binding in another arbitration. And therefore, what was found in one arbitration to be lawful 
might be found in another arbitration to be unlawful. It, it's a recipe for chaos. And I'm afraid our American legal system, as I said, which is on which so much of our society and our business and our culture are based, uh, is, uh, would be in decline. I mean, in the arbitration, you're saying that all of this evidence is just kept entirely secret and bound by confidentiality clauses. How does that right. differ going through the court process? Is there a uni- oh, oh, in court. Yes, yes, procedure? yes. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. Yeah, so there's a presumption that's been recognized by the Supreme Court that proceedings in the courts are generally public. And there's a presumption in arbitration that proceedings are generally confidential. It's the exact reverse. And it's in the rules. So it doesn't mean that everything in court is public. Things sometimes are filed under seal and there are restrictions on what you can share. But you have to justify keeping things confidential in court. And in arbitration, you have to justify making things public because the presumption is things are confidential. Okay, so meaning in court, for the statistical analyses, et cetera, the company would specifically have to justify why this should be kept confidential confidential and not part of the record. That's correct. That would be true of the expert analyses. It would have been true of the sworn statements about the mistreatment of the women as well. It doesn't mean they, they could have possibly succeeded in persuading a court to keep it confidential if they're very limited circumstances in which proceedings in court can be kept confidential for things like trade secrets or, um, you know, things about minors or by that I mean children or um, uh, private information like social security numbers or health information, things of that sort, our courts are very receptive to keeping confidential. We didn't have that kind of information here, but um, those kinds of things are routinely kept confidential in court. And otherwise, judges are very skeptical about requests to keep things confidential because judicial proceedings in this country are, are expected to be public. And so one other question I had was about, the, you mentioned that sometimes that arbitration can be sent to where the company is headquartered. And I mean, to me, this seems just a completely unfair requirement that makes seems like it yep. makes arbitration illegal. But I guess what you've been saying is that yep. even if it's, you could maybe show that that's legal, it would take two years of fighting in court just to get that specific aspect of arbitration overturned. Right. So now you're asking, I think, another really important question, which is, under what circumstances can you challenge certain terms of an arbitration agreement as being unfair, the limits on discovery or the venue choice or things of that sort? The Supreme Court has been extremely consistent in in endorsing the enforcement of arbitration agreements as written and said that only in rare circumstances where you can show that the term is fundamentally unfair, um, whatever that means, or that it is uh, violates a particular term of, of state contract law, the contract law of the state in which the arbitration is uh, supposed to occur, um, in a very limited way, can you challenge a term of an arbitration agreement? So 99% of the time, terms of arbitration agreements are enforced as written, is what it amounts to. Wow. So even something as insane as requiring someone to travel across the country just to bring their case forward probably would, would be upheld by the court. 
Yes, and the reason is because there's a fiction that everybody follows, which is that the parties volunteer to enter into that agreement. So, you know, when you start your job, you sign a lot of papers, and one of them is an arbitration agreement, and buried in the dozens of pages of fine print is, and if I need to go to arbitration, I agree to submit my arbitration to, you know, Boise, where the company is located, and uh, the headquarters is located, and you don't think much about it, you probably don't even read it, unless there's a dispute, and at that point you read it, and they say, oh, I'm sorry, you live in New York City, but I'm sorry, you have to bring your, your arbitration claim in Boise. And if you don't, it'll be dismissed. They say, well, that's unfair. And they say, well, you signed the agreement. The agreement is a choice that you entered into. Um, it's a contract. And you say, well, I didn't really have a choice. It's either I enter the agreement or I uh, don't work. And they say, well, that's your choice. And therefore, courts say that uh, you've exercised your free choice and as such, you're bound by the terms of your contract. Insane. Uh, thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah, that's really helpful. I like the the use of w- the word choice, and it's completely wrong. Yeah, it's a misnomer, I mean, right? It's yeah. a misnomer. It's one of the fictions about arbitration. Yeah, absolutely. That's like the yeah, it's the Sophie's choice of justice. So what are you going to do? That's not helpful for anyone. Listen, I know it's like five o'clock. I so, so appreciate it. We are very grateful sure. and we'll circle back okay. with the next steps. Thank you so much. Okay. Good to talk to you. Right. Okay. Yes. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Sure. Uh, yeah. My name is Deepak Gupta. Uh, my law firm is called Gupta Wessler and we're based in Washington, D.C. And I guess one thing I should say is that um, we're not related <laughs> and that we have the same last name. You know, if you have a discrimination claim, if you're be- getting ripped off um, on the minimum wage, if, you know, you've been ripped off by a predatory lender, um, the, the, the arbitration clause is the difference between whether there's any kind of claim um, or not. Because often, you know, lawyers are just not going to take the cases. Um, if they have to go into arbitration, it doesn't make sense to do that. Arbitration means you're not allowed have uh, class actions so people can't band together. And so for the vast majority of cases, um, the question isn't, you know, what happens in that room um, if they get to arbitration because people don't get to arbitration and they don't go to court and so they just, the claims die. And that's really what the companies are after is just killing um, people's claims, which means, you know, no deterrence, no compensation, no development of the law, and it's really kind of the end of law in a lot of areas. Um, and so it, what, what you're really doing is channeling cases outside of the, the public court system, and you're either just killing them altogether, or you're channeling them into a private, secret, uh, corporate tribunal. So one case that I, I worked on um, uh, that, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court is a case called AT&T uh, mobility versus Concepcion, and I think it's a um, it's it's sort of the the leading case um, in 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 terms of the Supreme Court's efforts to to allow companies to use the fine print of their contracts to prevent people of all kinds from banding together to go to court. And so the the facts of this case were just you know it's a it's a pretty ordinary um, consumer protection dispute involving. Um, this practice that AT&T had of tacking lots of um, 
fees onto people's um, cell phone bills that they weren't legally allowed to charge. And, you know, that's the kind of claim where it just doesn't make sense. It's not going to be feasible for individuals to be able to litigate those cases. Um, and so they have brought as a class action. And um, that case went to the U.S. Supreme Court and, and the Supreme Court held that even though it means that, you know, this claim is not going to be, be able to be brought any other way, we're still going to enforce the arbitration clause. And I think that was the first time where the court said, basically, um, look, we know that this is going to kill these kinds of claims, and we are still enforcing the arbitration um, clause to do that. And it's really, it's pretty amazing because they're doing this in the name of interpreting the law, the Federal Arbitration Act back from the 1920s, um, that's supposed to facilitate disputes. And instead, they're, they're giving companies a license to kill all kinds of um, disputes. So that's just one example of a case. But because it's a you know, U.S. Supreme Court case that laid down precedent, it means that that's going to apply to claims of, of workers, um, of consumers of all kinds. And, um, and then the cases we end up fighting in the court system where there's an arbitration clause are, are cases that are like really at the margins where it's a really extreme attempt um, to enforce arbitration. And we think we can get um, the, the courts to, to actually not enforce the arbitration clause. One thing that I've always found pretty frustrating about this is that it can seem really abstract to people until they actually encounter it in their own lives, until they have, you know, something happen. And then they realize that all these rights that they think they have, they don't really have. And so, you know, I, I... Hi, Teresa. Hi, Tanuja. How are you? I am doing great. Great. Rare, beautiful day in Chicago right now. Teresa, how long have you been practicing law? Um, uh, five years now on, on working on my sixth. So this obviously isn't the first time we're talking. That we met because you're working on the Facebook case about misclassification and kind of respecting privacy. Can you talk a little bit about what you've observed there, how arbitration comes into play, and kind of the hurdles you've had along the way? Yeah, so what what Facebook has done is a, what a lot of um, employers have begun to do in the past few years, and that's so, slowly implement an, arbitra an arbitration agreement by rolling it out for new employees only. So my client um, in the case she began working for Facebook many years ago, and she never had an arbitration agreement. And so when she came to us with her wage claim, uh, we filed it in court. Uh, we began to litigate, and we sought to litigate it on behalf of her and everyone else in her job um, category. And um, we briefed that, that issue with the court, whether we could give notice to everyone else who is in the same job as our client. And the court agreed, sure. Um, you know, Everyone is enough similar that we can send notice out. Um, and Facebook had argued, well, we have some of these people with arbitration agreements. And so we don't think that those people should be able to receive notice of this case at all because um, we, we don't think that they can bring 
their claims in court. Um, the judge disagreed and said, well, they should, people with arbitration agreements are still the same as the plaintiff. They're in the same job. Um, they were subject to the same um, pay practices. Um, if they have, if it turns out that people join the case who have arbitration agreements, then I'll decide once those people join the case whether they um, should be su subject to arbitration agreements, whether those are actually valid or whether they're not valid, and we'll we'll decide then what to do with those claims. Um, and so that that is where our case is right now. Um, Facebook appealed it, and so our appeal is pending right now with the Seventh Circuit here in um, in Illinois. So you had someone come forward, you recognize that this is an issue and hey, if it's affecting you, it's actually affecting all of these other people like you. But when you went to actually notify them, the company's response, the employer's response, Facebook's response was not, oh, we should take care of this issue for everyone. It was to limit essentially how wide a net was cast by saying, well, the following people can't do can't litigate this. They have to go through arbitration. And so they're trying to minimize the amount of people in the case so that it can't um, become a class yeah, action. They are, yeah. They, they are, yeah, they're trying to prevent. And what employers have done is, um, I mean, early on, arbitration agreements just were agreements to have your claim be heard in a different venue. Um, mm -hmm. So instead of court, instead of a judge deciding it would be an arbitrator. And we have pr prosecuted a lot of cases in front of an arbitrator on behalf of a class because um, you can bring a class in either. Um, but employers start to get smart to that and said, well, we'll put something because they write these arbitration agreements, which are, um, you know, contracts they purportedly have with their employees, but the employees aren't writing the contracts or negotiating the contracts the employers are unilaterally writing whatever they want into these agreements, they said, well, we're going to put something in there that says you can't, you can't proceed, you know, in conjunction with any other employees, you only have to arbitrate individually. And so that, in essence, splits everybody up. You can't have that advantage of um, that leverage of, of, you know, having strength in numbers of not just one person who was not paid over time, but, you know, 10, 20, then you get notice out, you get 30, 40, and then you get class cert and you can get everybody in. Um, now it's, you know, the one employee against the big employer, and it really shifts the power dynamic in the cases. And for a lot of people, you know, it's just not worth it for them to bring their claim um, if they are, they're up against their employer on their own, their claim may not be worth more than a few thousand dollars. You know, it costs a lot of money um, for, for the lawyers to prosecute a claim that, you know, ultimately um, might not be worth a lot. And so that's, that is why um, employers have decided to try to prevent people from, from proceeding collectively because it just, it, it, gives them more power and it splits everybody up. Sometimes, you know, there'll be an arbitration agreement that's just for a very specific sort of claim. Um, you know, like um, I think recently a lot of companies have decided to make their arbitration agreements apply to most of the claims, but they carve out um, sexual harassment claims 
for certain reasons. So, so we yeah, just have to make sure familiar. that there's a valid arbitration agreement. It covers the claim that's that issue. Yeah, yeah, and um, and the and and that's the job for the court to decide. Um, so, so we like to start off in court, um, and then you know go from there, and then we'll you know sometimes we end up in arbitration, sometimes we don't. I see. Do you think, I know that we're coming up to the end of our time here, do you think there's, you know, you've clearly shown that it's no one's best interest to kind of file these frivolous lawsuits. You're in it to win this, not just for the person at hand, but it sounds like for anybody similarly affected in, in that person's kind of similar stature or position. Are there other misconceptions that we should be chasing down to make sure as we, uh, or to make sure that we're making a strong argument for employers to make arbitration optional instead of forced? Yeah, sure. I mean, there is a misconception, I think, that arbitration is um, is sort of like a quicker, more efficient, easy way to for an employee to um, to get their claims resolved with their employer. And you know, our experience in arbitration is that, you know, it's not often quicker. Um, and then, you know, the, the employees in tra is trading off a lot of protections um, that they have in the court that, that they don't realize that they're getting rid of when they agree to arbitration. So, you know, arbitrator trader does not have to necessarily follow legal precedent like a court does. Um, there aren't... Um, there are some like very general rules of procedure, but there's no requirement for the arbitrator to conform to those rules or rules of evidence. Um, and employ employers can actually, if they want to in their arbitration agreement, rewrite their own rules of how they want the arbitration to go. So, you know, obviously, you know, if, if the employers are writing the rules, um, you know, that they're going to be slanted, slanted in favor of the employer. Um, so wait a minute, let have... me back that up. I want to follow up <laughs> yeah. on that because so for evidence, like I, this is for my like TV knowledge of the law, as opposed to anything there's, I forget what it's called. It's like the Brady rule or something that says, regardless of which side discovers a piece of evidence, if it like both sides have to know about it, all both parties have to have access to the full body of evidence, regardless of whether it incriminates or um yeah. exonerate someone right like are you saying that rule does not exist in this case um, in arbitration well that well that's in that's in the criminal context so there is no criminal arbitration that i i know of um mm -hmm. so that that's different but like a rule of evidence um like um hearsay is not admissible something like that an arbitrator could decide to consider hearsay um you know it, there's no there's no mm -hmm. like there's no hard and fast rules that need to be followed. Um, you know, there's no rule. There are no rules about, um, you know, how how much discovery you can take in a case. How many people um, can be subject to depositions. Um, it it can be um, just really slanted toward toward the employer. They can they can draft the rules to make it what what they say, you know, very streamlined, but really it's limiting the employee's ability to get the information they need to prove up their claim and, you know, 
and, and prove that there's a violation there and that they are entitled to be compensated. Um, you know, one one thing that that employers put into arbitration agreements is they make it confidential. Um, so then, you know, nothing nothing is filed publicly. There's no public record that these claims ever existed. Um, your, you know, cubicle mate may have an action going on um, against your mutual employer to get paid, and you have no right to know that you could have the same violation happening against you. Um, it's all very secretive, and it's you know it's designed to keep employees from banding together and to keep their like I said to keep their claims from seeing the light of day. Um, you know there's no there's no judge or jury. There's no um, the the bar for being able to appeal any adverse um, decision is very high. Um, so it's just it it you don't litigants don't have all the protections that they get just by nature of being in court in arbitration. Well, on that super uplifting note, I want to thank you so much <laughs> for for taking time to talk to us. I think it's it's been really helpful, and thank you for fighting the good fight. Uh, hope to talk to you more soon. Thank you so much. It's it's been so great to talk with you, Tanuja. You know, thanks for everything that you and your organization does. Um, I'm, I'm very supportive of your work. 